This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I, I tend to get uh, unsolicited feedback, such that that should be a very short talk. Um, you know, isn't that a contradiction of terms? Uh, you, know, you mean they found one? Um, and... There's like a, a book a month that sort of, you know, piles on and these unflattering portrayals. The, the primal teen, that's actually not too bad, but mom, I hate you. Get out of my life. But first drop Cheryl and I up at the mall. Uh, now I know why tigers eat their youngs are right to the point. Yes, you, your teen is crazy. But with the technologies uh, um, uh, such as magnetic resonance imaging, um, we can, for the first time, look under the hood at the living, growing brain. And what we've found is that not only do teens you know, have brains, but, uh, <laughs> but they're, they're good brains. They're, 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 they're you know, as they should be. And they're not broken. Um, and and I'd, I'd go so far as to say, if they weren't the way that they are, we wouldn't even be here. Um, and uh, evidence from that comes from a kind of an unlikely uh, source. I'll get to in a minute. So the teen brain is different than the brain of a child. It's different than the brain of an adult. It's not just halfway between. It's you know, kind of its own distinct um, entity. And it's been exquisitely forged by evolution to have certain features. Uh, behaviorally, the big three are increased risk-taking, increased sensation-seeking, and a move away from parents to peers. And I think these are really deeply rooted in our biology because it's not just humans. All social mammals have these three features. And so we're probably you know, fighting Mother Nature by trying to eliminate these. Um, uh, and this is always very speculative to argue these ways, but uh, one idea is that it helped us get out of the home, which is a really irrational thing to do. Right? Wow, I mean, people love us, they feed us, protect us. It's a good gig, right? Well, um, but it turns out it works better if we do. And we, uh, less inbreeding, it, it just sort of you know, not... I think morally right or wrong, it just works better if, if, um, if, if, if this happens. And, and so these features, they evolved at a time without firearms, without you know, high-speed motor vehicles, without designer drugs and stuff. So some of these issues are kind of this um, Stone Age brain and com- computer age world aspect. But I think that these behaviors uh, um, have, have virtues as well. Um, when I uh, was at the NIH, um, the Smithsonian Museum was sort of close. They had this exhibit, The Hall of Human Origins, um, which I, I really liked. It kind of uh, not particularly featured, a little uh, placard on the floor looked at the relationship between brain size and climate change. And the last big increase in brain size, 500, 800,000 years ago. But what I thought was intriguing was that what correlated was the change in climate, not the degree. So before seeing this, I thought, yeah, it got really cold. You had to be super smart just to stay alive long enough to get food and reproduce. And, but this is subtly different. That Everybody in this room had ancestors whose brains were good at adaptation. Uh, and we're, we're really good at it in terms of, of uh, even compared to our quite close, genetically close, rather than the Neanderthals or tall, Neanderthals, um, <laughs> I'll pause. We can edit that later. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, and there's an, we can tell an enormous amount from teeth and fossilized teeth. It's actually redundant. Everybody's teeth right now are fossils, um, calcified um, cells. But it, they work like trees, so they have rings. 
So tree rings, you can, this is a wet year, a good year of growth, the, the rings are wider. And across many different species, the rings get closer and closer as you mature. The rings stop, stop and you, you're done growing, you're done maturing. And so um, when you find these fossilized teeth, if you find a fossilized Neanderthal tooth of a 12-year-old and then check the rest of the cave, he's going to be with his children, not his parents. And this is often portrayed as surprisingly rapid growth in the Neanderthals. But I think that's the wrong way to look at it. What's surprising is our protracted growth. We're the outliers by far. It's one of the most distinctive things about us. And it, even across like crows and, and uh, many other species, the longer you're under protection of your parent, the more complicated your food gathering, your communication, you know, problem solving. Crows are actually really smart as an example, but similar crows um, in size and stuff that don't have this protective maturation don't have those abilities as well. I mean, it doesn't work to just keep your kids at home until they're 40. I don't think on an individual basis it doesn't work, but it's an intriguing trade-off, I think, that we keep options open. We keep our brains changeable, see what the environment's going to be like. We can live on the North Pole. We can live on the equator. Everywhere. We can even live in outer space for a little while with technologies that our brains have developed. And so this is a good thing, I think, in terms of uh, this ability to keep options open for a long time, but it's really being put to the test with the, the, the digital revolution. And, and this is, just in my you know, short career, it's a game changer. Um, the way that, that we interact with, like we're doing at this moment, with ones and zeros and, and the, uh, the lights, the projector, this, you know, it's, it's changed everything. It's changed the way that we learn and um, great you know, content that's uh, on the Internet. I mean, the greatest minds on the planet are click away you know, for free. Um, it's, just, it's amazing. It's magical. The way that we play and the way that we interact with each other. And so I've been fascinated by this interaction in terms of the you know, biology of, of this changeability and um, the technologies that have um, you know, taken over in a sense of, of uh, almost 11 hours a day of screen time and 30% of that time more than, more than one device. And so the usual question is, is it good or bad? Or, you know, and that's the wrong question, right? It's, it's almost any interesting question is, it depends in terms of in what ways it, and what, how it depends and what it depends upon. But I think that this is um, a, an opportunity in terms of to um, influence uh, adolescents. One of the, the tragedies of my uh, profession is that it's almost a 10-year gap between onset of illness and treatment. It, it's, it's, we, we need to do better. And I think perhaps the technologies can help us get there in terms of by monitoring things like social media activity, maybe even just movement, GPS data, harnessing these technologies in an ethically appropriate way to help us recognize mental illness so that we can intervene while the brain is still more changeable. And so a lot of the you know, debates around this that there's, it's just not natural. Right? We evolved to talk to each other, to be with each other, share smiles and touches, and, and now we're looking at screens for a big part of the day. Um, but a counter-argument to that is you know, reading is not natural either. Reading is only about 5,200 years old. So most humanity, nobody read. So, so I don't think that by itself is, is a good argument. It kind of makes 
the point that the whole aspect of this is the changeability. 10,000 years ago, hunting, gathering berries, that's the same brain in terms of, that's a blink of an eye in evolutionary terms. But, but our brains are amazing. We can adapt. You know, a lot of us spend a lot of our day with, with symbols, you know, words, um, and, that. and that's so different than you know, what our ancestors did. And, and so my career has basically been this in terms of trying to understand this plasticity in terms of how to uh, optimize the good and you know, minimize the bad. Um, and this kind of, how do you help people with mental illness? is the fundamental question. And so the kind of that notion of like, what do we know? How do we know what we know? What don't we know? Why don't we know that? But you know, my first assumption is the brain's involved. I hope so. If it's like a spleen or something, I'm going to feel like a complete fool down the road. But, so I, but I think you know, that's a good, it's a reasonable assumption. Um, and Professor Jernigan began this journey. BJ and I started uh, together at NIH following you know, down that path of looking at um, the brain and how the brain changes in both typical development and in illnesses. It's a kind of a non-creative study design, actually, but scan kids um, you know, when they're young and follow them um, as they go through life, see how they're doing at school, at home, uh, um, see... Um, what sort of influences uh, are on the brain for good or ill. And um, at, the, at the NIH, we, we did about 10,000 uh, scans, about half the kids healthy, half the kids um, with different illnesses. And what we found, were, were, uh, it's nuanced, but like, the brain doesn't mature by getting bigger and bigger. By first grade, it's already 93% of adult size. Uh, it matures by becoming more connected within itself, and more specialized. And this idea of um, being more connected, um, there's many ways you can approach this, but white matter is one of them. So this insulating material that you get 1% to 2% more of um, in the fourth or fifth decade, the brain um, is able to communicate amongst itself faster. It's not very subtle. It's like a 3,000-fold increase in, in bandwidth. It's, I think, um, underlies a lot of the remarkable behaviors that we can do. But it, it's not just a matter of, of maximizing speed. It's all about the timing and, and the cells that fire together, wire together, the meaning, all the information's in, in these patterns. Um, but more and more we're understanding that that's the progression. If we look at different parts of the brain, like letters of the alphabet, as we go from uh, an infant to child, latency, uh, teenagers, emerging adulthood, that these letters become words, the words become sentences, the sentences, you know, paragraphs, metaphorically. And, and this all goes up in, in adolescence. The brain, almost no matter how you measure it, whether molecular, um, EEG, blood flow, um, it, it's just, you know, it get, becomes more connected. And this is a, a kind of a fresh look in terms of this idea of graph theory networks. It gives us a whole new look. So for something like schizophrenia, before we'd be like, is this chunk bigger or smaller or different um, shape or size? But looking at the, the same MRI scan, the same data, and looking at how it's interconnected, then we can discern old from young, healthy from ill, because um, of brain not, not perfectly, but it's really exciting for, for someone like me. I can't do the math, but to be a, a consumer of it in terms of 
that um, you know, by looking at this connectivity, it gives us a, a whole new uh, perspective on these illnesses. The other process is the gray matter process, and the one-two punch is overproduce and then war, or fight it out. So it's, it's how almost all complexity in nature arises. Uh, it's the engine of evolution. Overproduce, something non-random selection, um, and it has great you know, potential. So it's, it's constantly ongoing. It's not like you only overproduce during childhood and only prune during adolescence, but that we see this upside-down U type of curve where, where, as we specialize, the brain actually becomes um, smaller. So after around 10, 11, 12, your brain doesn't get bigger. It gets smaller, but leaner, meaner, more specialized based on um, what you're demanding of it. But, but it's not all um, parts equal. The prefrontal cortex involved in controlling impulses, long-range planning. It's particularly late to, to settle down, some, you know, 25 to 30. Um, and that combined with the hormonally activated, puberty-activated limbic system, the passions and rewards, this, this imbalance creates a lot of the um, specialness of you know, teen behavior um, aspects. But again, this is how it should be. Um, if the prefrontal cortex is already you know, done, like 11 or 12 and stuff, then we wouldn't be as adaptable. And so I think this is the, the tension or the trade-off. The other um, place to start in terms of that, these illnesses happen at different times. And not perfectly, there's always variation, but Alzheimer's doesn't happen when you're three, and autism doesn't start when you're 60, that, that characteristically certain illnesses tend to emerge at, at certain ages. And that's it's puzzling. You know, why is that? In terms of, and when you start looking at this, um, so much happens in adolescence. Not a lot, most. It's up to 75%. And I, I still don't know the answer. That's been for 25 years. I went like, why? Because the early answer was, oh, st- teenagers are stressful. It's a stressful time of life. You know, kids have their parents killed in front of them. Or they're starving to death. They're in war, 20 countries. Enormous stresses. Right? But they don't get schizophrenia. And, and so that never you know, rang true. And I still don't know. I don't know the answer to this. You know, why, why do things happen when they do? Um, and so just you know, one example is for schizophrenia. All of the findings you see in adult schizophrenia, you could predict what if typical teen changes went too far. It's not causal. They already had schizophrenia. But it's sort of, so far without, um, without exception in terms of both the MRI changes but also the molecular changes. And so it's, it's just this point, it's intriguing. It doesn't help me help families with schizophrenia. Uh, but I think these are the kind of clues that we're starting to understand. So in this specialization process, in typical development, it's about 7% from ages 12 to 17. In schizophrenia, 28%. So it's not subtle, you know, four-fold difference. Um, and so understanding the typical development, I think, is key. But about half of what I deal with as an adult isn't an illness. Right? Pregnancy is not an illness. But it's a big deal. Relationships, car accidents, incarceration, you know, life decisions. This happens during adolescence. And, and it's, it's frustrating, you know, as a physician, it's like there's no insurance, you know, forums to check in terms of for these very real issues um, that aren't an illness. And this kind of notion is the glass half empty or half full. 
because this changeability could be a great opportunity, making it even more tragic that we aren't recognizing the illnesses when they occur. And, and my final sort of analogy is to use Michelangelo in terms of, this is a very famous painting of his that, the, by design, it should look like a brain, uh, the cross-section of the brain. He, 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 no, he, yeah, it, it was, he wrote about it himself and stuff, and it's sometimes called the original synapse, you know, the, Sorry, <laughs> neuroscience humor. Um, but, but, it, but it's not like that. It, it's, it's much more like his other, his other expression of art, of sculpting. You know, we start with this you know, block of marble and life experiences. So then we eliminate parts. So we might be born with different chunks of marble, different sizes from genetics. You know, different, but within each, if we, if we knew what we were doing, if we could guide this process... You know, we, there's masterpieces, and, and you know, I think almost everybody. And we don't know very, we don't know what we're doing yet very well. And it's like most of the illnesses emerging, less than one and a half percent of the funding has been adolescence. Until you now, finally, now we we have this project um, that, for the first time, is going to really do this right. Um, 11, 12,000 you know, kids, 19 sites across the country to understand what matters. How does the brain grow in health and illness? Looking at um, you know, everything we can think of, frankly, in terms of, of influences on this. Um, I'm going to brag for San Diego a bit in terms of uh, there's these 19 sites across the country, but the coordinating center for the quantitative core and the um, neuropsych core coordinating all the centers are both here in San Diego as well. What a good deal for us, you know, in terms of the opportunities to, to try to understand, you know, what matters in teens' lives. And so the technologies is, is a big part of it. How, how can we get a better sense of internal and external environments with the sensors, with, with um, devices they're already using, already wearing? Because this is the crossroads, and right, you know, this is where people you know, make big decisions about their direction in life. And there's this kind of notion that teens are messed up and they're misguided and stuff, and it's, and it's dangerous. And I, I feel bad because I've... Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. People don't do anything. But you know, this is, this is you know, the crossroads. Um, and what happens is even teens themselves buy into this. right? And like stereotype threat and stuff, if you think that you're you know, not capable and stuff like that, it matters. Most teens do well. You know, they'll get through this. They'll do well. But I think we do a disservice by, by you know, selling them short. And, and I think that... you know. We really need to recognize the huge upsides of this, much more than the downsides, that if we can figure out what we're doing, what matters, we can really make a big difference. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.